The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Laura Lenick. She has explored agricultural and food system sustainability through more than 30 years of work as a federal researcher, policymaker, college educator, community activist, and farmer to understand what it takes to move sustainability values into action. Her research in sustainable agriculture systems was nationally recognized with a USDA Secretary's Honor Award in 2000, and she has a broad federal policy expertise gained through work as a congressional lobbyist. For more than a decade, Laura led the academic program in sustainable agriculture at Warren Wilson College, where she also served as the Director of Sustainability Education, coordinated energy descent action planning, and developed an innovative sustainable dining policy for the college. She contributed to the third National Climate Assessment as a lead author of the USDA report Climate Change and Agriculture in the U.S., Effects and Adaptation, And in 2014, Laura left Warren Wilson to serve as co-director of Resilience Initiatives for Second Nature. She is also an affiliated researcher with the Local Food Research Center and a climate resilience planning consultant with Fernleaf Solutions, both located in Asheville, North Carolina. Dr. Lenick holds a Ph.D. in soil science. Welcome, Dr. Lenick. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. You've had such an amazing background in understanding how agriculture impacts so many facets of our lives. And I'm really looking forward to reviewing the book that I have in front of me titled Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate. The time is right for this topic. I want to know what led you to focus on climate change in particular. That's a great question. I, for many years, taught and directed the academic program in sustainable agriculture at a small college here just outside of Asheville. And so I was teaching the next generation of farmers and food system workers and activists, young people who were interested in changing the food system. And while I taught about global warming, I really did not have climate change in my curriculum. It was purely by chance in 2009 when I was approached to be part of a community event discussing the climate change effects in western North Carolina to transportation, water systems, and food systems. And so I was asked to to talk about food systems in our region And I, of course, said yes, hung up the phone, and I I distinctly remember thinking, wow, I'm going to need to learn about climate change effects on the food system. And it was one of those moments that changes the course of your life. I began to do research to prepare for that presentation and was really shocked to learn that climate change was happening then, it was happening now, and it really was a wake-up call for me to begin to look seriously at how I 
brought climate change into my curriculum. It ultimately led to, during a sabbatical year, I was had the privilege of working on that USDA report as a lead author. And it was work on that report that led directly to resilient agriculture. I was the lead author on the adaptation chapter in mm-hmm. the USDA report. And one of the things I looked for in the literature was expressions or perceptions of U.S. farmers and how they were experiencing climate change. And I was shocked to discover that back in 2011, 2012, there was not one peer-reviewed article describing American farmers and ranchers' experiences of uh, climate change. And I resolved then I didn't know how I would do it or what form it would take, but I wanted to bring American farmers and ranchers' voices into the debate around climate change. And particularly what I wanted to do was was bring stories of successful adaptation into the conversation around climate change and agriculture. How many farms in the United States did you visit? I actually did not visit all of the farms in doing the interviews. They were actually phone interviews. When I did this research, I had no support, and I was working full-time at teaching at Warren Wilson. So my, I had very little resources, and um, I did all of the soliciting of farmers for the book through email and phone calls and then did phone interviews. I had been on some of these farms in the past, and since the book was released and I've been traveling, I've been on more farms, but I did not travel to the farms to do the work for the well, book. Well, that's very interesting because I've opened your book to the page where you show the map of the United States and all of the many farms represented. So I think you've got a great national representation. But it sounds to me that what you've done is you've done these great phone interviews. Did every farmer get the same questions? Yes, they did. Yes, this was a case study research project. Excellent. So I used I use good methods. The other thing I did, I had a very tight filter on what sorts of farmers were appropriate for this research. And one of the things was that they were fairly well known, that there was a lot of information known about their farm because they had participated in other research or they'd been written up by maybe the SARE program or some other organization. So, and I did that intentionally because I wanted, I knew that I would not have a lot of time with these farmers. I mean, they volunteered their time. I didn't have any money to pay them for these, this work. And something like resilience is such a condition of so many factors in a farm system that I thought it would be helpful going forward if I used farmers where there was a lot of information already available about the kinds of practices they use, about their transition, about the changes in their farm over time. Mm -hmm. How did you come to the questions that you asked each one? I developed the set of questions through my work becoming prepared to do the research. One of the the great lessons I learned early on with the questions is that, at the time anyway, I found that I couldn't ask a farmer a question like, how is climate change affecting you? Mm. Because they don't think about it in terms of climate change. They think about the effects of climate change in terms of weather. And that makes total sense. In retrospect, 
I should be surprised if a farmer would talk about climate change. Weather is lived experience. Climate change is really a concept. And so in developing those questions, what I was interested in learning about was their perception of changes in weather since the time they started farming and how they've adapted to those changes, if they have. And then the most interesting question turned out, or the question that was the most interesting, I think, ultimately, was that I asked them how do they think about managing risk on their farm, weather risk on their farm, and what assets were particularly important for managing weather risk. And this is really the resilience question. Right. This is so interesting because I agree with you with regard to understanding this big concept of climate change. And yet in visiting farms myself, what I've discovered is farmers will comment about, you know, like in North Dakota, for example, they'll comment and say, you know, we never used to plant corn here. And you think about how our diets are going to change as a result of weather pattern changes. And in the supermarket, though, I don't believe the average person has really noticed much of these changes that are taking place right now. That's right. And that's because we eat from a global food system. Yeah. One of the things I learned in preparing for that little panel discussion back in 2009 was that to ask the question, how is climate change affecting the Western North Carolina food system, was really not the right question to be asking because even in our area, and we have a very strong local food movement here, we eat about 3% of our diet comes from our region. And it's even less. I think it's around 1% in most of the country. Mm-hmm. So the reason we haven't seen any effect of climate change in our own food system is because we're eating from this massive global system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably talk a little bit about the language that we use around this issue. So, Because there are so many words, and I don't know that we really have a good understanding of them. So we talk about sustainable agriculture. We talk about resilient agriculture. Where do these terms connect? What's the difference, or, or are they indeed the same? That is a great question, and that's a question that I spent a lot of time thinking about. I have been working in sustainable agriculture for 30 years, and when I first was introduced to this notion of resilience, I really rejected the idea that it was better than or the next thing after sustainability. So I spent a lot of time really trying to understand resilience, resilience theory, resilience thinking, so that I could really understand how it was different and whether or not it was really a a better term. And my own conclusion was that it is different and that it is more useful term to us now than sustainability. My conclusion was that resilience is an underlying condition of sustainability. Mm -hmm. And the, the way that they are different is primarily in the emphasis on localization or regionalization of the inputs to agriculture and the outputs from agriculture. And uh, that, I think, 
although sustainable agriculture has that principle in it, it is not so strongly expressed mm-hmm. as it is in resilience. And then the other real difference is that resilience very squarely offers tools for managing change, for managing unpredictable change, and sustainable agriculture does not. Interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit about what some of those tools are? Sure. The main tool or the main benefit of thinking about agriculture in terms of resilience rather than sustainability is that it changes your perception of what you can assume. It assumes disturbances in, for example, supplies of inputs and distribution of food out of the farm. It assumes that you will have surprises, and it assumes that you don't have a good understanding of how that farm system is going to operate through that growing season. So one of the really important tools that can be used in resilient agriculture is a type of management that's called adaptive management. And this kind of management is actually becoming more common in agriculture in the U.S. It's typically called whole farm management. Hmm. And I was interested to learn recently that um, the Land Stewardship Project in the Midwest has been running a, what they're calling Farm Beginnings Program. It's a, it's a community-based beginning farmer educational program for the last 15 years or so. And the core of their curriculum is adaptive management. Interesting. So, yeah. And I think that's exactly right. That's what we need to be teaching young farmers, and I think even older farmers could benefit from thinking about managing using the tools in adaptive management. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Laura Lennick. She is the author of Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate. I want to talk a little bit about something that you said. You said that really resilient agriculture is really localized agriculture, and that makes a lot of sense because if you've got changing weather patterns, changing climate, we would hope that a regionalized seed source would reflect the seed's adaptation to changing climate. And I wonder if you think there's enough time for the seeds to make those needed adaptations. Yeah, I did say it's local in nature, but you correctly brought the scale a little bit larger into more regional agriculture, which is actually what resilience theory would suggest that we need. In terms of seed sources and, you know, adapting food crops to more regional conditions, I am hopeful that we have time. The reason is we do not need to be breeding new crops, new food crops for every region. One of the lessons that the farmers taught me in when I was working on the book is that we can look, if we know how weather is changing in our region, we can look to other regions with that same weather mm-hmm. and learn from them, learn from the farmers, 
share crops, share livestock, share uh, different cultivars and varieties. And so it's not quite as simple as looking to the south, which I read about sometimes. You know, as the weather, as the climate warms, agriculture will move north. It's not quite as simple as just looking to the south for ideas and for different varieties of crops and uh, breeds of livestock, but it's similar to that. So that's the first piece of that puzzle that that gives me hope that, that we do have time. And then the other piece of that puzzle is that although these changes are occurring and occurring relatively rapidly, if we were to put resources into developing more regional agriculture, um, we in the U.S. have a lot of resources that we could bring to bear on this problem if we chose to. We've got money, we've got innovation capacity, and we have this incredibly powerful system of land-grant universities, agricultural research stations that are all regional in nature and were created to advance agriculture and food systems in this country. If we were to turn that power to solving this problem of resilient agriculture in the face of climate change, I feel really hopeful that we could do that. Yeah. Boy, you've opened up a big can of worms there, haven't you, in the direction that (laughs) land grants have taken. I subscribe to different agriculture services because this is really connected to food and public health, you know, how we feed our our populations and the quality of our food that we consume and whether or not we're using chemicals in our water supply. So that's why I'm so interested in this. But I, I recently saw a press release from the president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels is his name, And he said that anybody who is questioning genetic engineering is anti-science. And I thought, whoa, we need to talk about what is the responsibility of universities to a more regionalized food system? What is our responsibility as scientists and farmers? And I I use farmers uh, under that same scientist umbrella because they're just doing research in the field. And I want to examine this notion that we've got to feed the world, we've got to use genetic technology, why not use traditional plant breeding methods on a more regional basis, and why not feed the world one community at a time, rather than looking at this more global responsibility that, that the U.S. seems to enjoy, you know, we've got, a, we've got somehow a responsibility to feed the world. Yeah, wow, there was a lot in that statement. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The, the the piece that I would like to speak to first would be this notion of feeding the world and needing industrial agriculture to feed the world. I think this is a very outmoded notion, and it's not serving us well any longer. We know how to feed the world. We can feed the world right now. We are ready globally produce more calories than every person in the world now needs. So I think, and we could talk about that if you'd like in in more depth, maybe, I'm kind of feeling like maybe another call sometime, another... um, Yeah, we'll have to do a part two. I'm I'm feeling that way too. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so many issues. But it's really, I like your notion of focusing on regional food production, feeding communities one community at a time. And really 
turning the attention of the land grants to more towards food production rather than feed production would be one thing. And also turning the attention of the land grants not only on their responsibility to, to agriculture and food, but they have a very – they're public universities, and they have a strong public well-being mission. And so I think that we certainly have some good – a good foundation to stand on to ask the public universities or the land-grant system specifically to rethink some of their goals and some of the strategies that they're using to meet their goal of public well-being. Yeah, and I think that goes back to how we fund these institutions and how we desperately need public funding, independent research, and a, a sense of community, which you get to later in the book. And I, before we get there, I want to go back to this Feed the World concept because I think it's very interesting. So you've got an interview with Will Harris, who's based in Georgia, and he's got cattle. And he talks about how he and his neighbors will have a conversation about, you know, hey, somebody will say to him, you're not going to be feeding the world the way you, you are raising your livestock. And he says, whoa, you know, the earth has a carrying capacity. And once you get beyond that capacity, neither one of these farmers are going to feed the world. But I appreciate his focus on the limited natural resources that we have, the limiting factors, and the fact that we can't have a conversation about feeding the world without having a conversation about population. Yeah, such a such an astute comment. Um, really love that quote from Will Harris. It ends the first chapter of the book and really sets us up for thinking about these issues. Will is a, a pasture-based livestock producer. He's an organic. He's also certified organic. And yes, he's growing beef, but he's actually growing eight different species. So he's got a very diverse, multi-species, pasture-based livestock production system. He very rightly says that no kind of agriculture will feed the world if, if we allow population to go over current capacity of the earth. And there's a lot of evidence that we've already passed that right now. He also goes on to, to argue that the only way that his kind of agriculture, and he's meaning organic farming, um, can't feed the world would be if you do it in terms just of land base, so land efficiency. But I would argue, but and, and I, I take Will's point, and I think that he, he makes a good point, but I don't know that he was thinking, for example, of how much food waste there is. Right. And the the typical... Estimates that I see of that are between 30 and 40 percent of all the edible food produced on the planet is wasted. Exactly. It's thrown away. So my thinking would be, you know, let's uh, make the choice. You know, a resilient agriculture would make the choice that we have perhaps slightly lower but stable yields through changing weather and uh, changing climate. And that the way we make up any shortfall, if there is any, is stop wasting food. Mm -hmm. And that's going to handle a nice bump in population right there. Exactly. You know, another thing that you mentioned was that Will Harris had diversity in the livestock breed. And I, I want our listeners to also connect the dots between resiliency and biodiversity. 
Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there are three fundamental characteristics of resilient systems, and the first is diversity. That's incredibly important. That provides what different sorts of capacities that are associated with resilience, like a response capacity, the ability to respond to a disturbance so that the system is unharmed. You avoid any harm from the disturbance. Response capacity is one part of what diversity gives you. Recovery capacity is another, and that's the ability to recover quickly if there is damage as a result of a disturbance. And the third kind of capacity and resilience that diversity supports is the least, the one that I think gets the least amount of attention right now in public discussion of resilience, and that's transformation capacity. The capacity to change a system when you understand that it is not providing, it is not creating well-being. So thinking about this in terms of food systems, it would be a, a, the ability to recognize that food system is not providing well-being to society and then having the resources, the innovation capacity, the technology, and everything that you would need to make a change. And Will is a great example of a farmer that's done just that. He was an uh, industrial uh, beef farmer, conventional beef farmer, fed his cattle feed in feedlots, and at some point in his development as a farmer, that became unsatisfying to him, mm. and so he made a change. He transitioned his farm to this very diverse, multi-species, pasture-based livestock farm, and he very much thinks about his farm as an ecosystem. You can read about that in the interview with him in the book, but we've also been working on a video series. I've partnered with the Climate Listening Project to make a series of videos, and a video with Will is out there already. We shared it on social media, and he speaks very eloquently to his farm being an ecosystem and he manages it like a healthy ecosystem, and that the resilience of his farm comes from that. We've got a minute left, and I want to leave that minute to you. I do want you to come back because I have many more questions on my page, and I think that climate change is one of the issues that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have highlighted as the most important issue facing public health today. So I want us to connect the dots more. But to end our part one conversation, what would you like to leave our listeners with based on what we've already discussed today? I think I'd like to leave the listeners um, understanding this. We already know a lot about how to build resilience in our food system. We already know a lot about how to transform our food system so that it's providing many benefits, public health, good quality food, nutrition, plus providing our communities some protection from climate change and also reducing climate change, drawing down the sequestering carbon and so we can slow climate change and feed the world and build healthier communities with a resilient agriculture. Well, I want to thank you very much for that. And I want to, again, let our listeners know, if you're wondering how this conversation even came to be, I met Dr. Laura Lennick at an event 
I saw her book, Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate, and I knew that you would make a wonderful guest, and indeed you did. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Lenick, and I look forward to our next conversation. I do, too. Thank you. Thank you.